Mana 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 this is social disgusting welcome to social disgusting a podcast where my guests and i discuss our lives amidst the wanton hellscape in which we find ourselves i am brandon aka brandon hope you're well my guest is a writer tv producer and filmmaker who has written in a great many forms from being a reporter and bigfoot <laughs> excuse me a reporter and Bigfoot expert for the Weekly World News to helping create the IFC series Marin, on which he also wrote and executive produced, as well as serving in a similar capacity on the Stars series Blunt Talk, to writing fiction that has appeared in a number of literary magazines and in the form of his great short story collection, The Cult in My Garage. Please welcome Duncan Birmingham. Welcome. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Brandon. Great to, uh, great to be here. Well, wow, that was a great intro. That was like thank the best you. intro I've ever had. Okay, mark it down. This is already, we're on... Starting off on a high, it's only downhill from here, so that's perfect. Uh, but yeah, thank you for being here. I really appreciate your time. Um, yeah, no, I'm I'm excited to be here. Um, I, that's uh, super nice that you read the book. You belong to a, a very s- small uh, elite crew of readers that you could probably you know fit in a bathroom stall. So uh, <laughs> that's that's really awesome. Yeah, no, well, of course, it's a it really is great. And um, with short story books, especially, I always. I take longer to read them because I want to savor the stories because especially when you have a physical book, you know, you, you can see in real time how much you have left and I want to enjoy those. So I really tried to space them out over a number of days, but it, it really is a great book. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. I, I was curious too, that I guess before we get to the unfair, how are you question, but how difficult is it to name, to pick a name for a book? I feel like I would agonize over that. Uh, I I did agonize over it. I think even uh, in the um, I have an acknowledgments page in the back, and I I think I say something like um, uh, thanks to all these people who you know uh, listen to me like uh, wring my hands and come up with a title. But but I have to say for a short story collection, it does feel a little easier because um, at least most of the collections that I like usually there's like the uh, you know, the signature story uh, in there or um, that, you know, that acts, that doubles as a title for the for the book. Yeah. Are there a lot of considerations like for that that go into it? You know, which is to say, like, The Colt in My Garage is a great title because you're like, wow, what is this going to be? It's very intriguing and evocative and that seems very effective for what you want. Thank you. I, I, so once I... I, I think before I wrote The Cult in My Garage, I maybe was thinking it would be called Everybody's Famous, which was one of the earlier stories I wrote. But I'm, I'm very glad I didn't call it that because I feel like no one – I think we're all fed up with anything about fame. And uh, that's why that short story is so short. But The Cult in My Garage I really liked, although th- then somebody mentioned they thought it sounded like a, a Goosebumps book title. And then I soured on it for a while and I was like, a, a Goosebumps book title. So, so yeah, that's when I started kind of uh, quizzing, quizzing friends. Everybody's famous, the cult in my garage. I don't know. We talked about Good in a Room for a little bit. Someone liked Irish Goodbye. But uh, I, I think we landed, uh, I think we landed on the, the right one. No, I think it was a great call. Like, you know, I think each short story, they all have very good and effective titles, but I th- Obviously, it's a whole other consideration when you're like, what are we going to name the totality of this collection? And that's a, obviously a whole other thought process. Yeah, I feel like um, the, the title feels a little surreal. And I think about uh, 80% of the stories have a, a just a little bit of a surreal element, kind of surreal uh, 
a surreal aspect kind of rooted in the mundane. So uh, hopefully that comes across in the title. And then really I was just hoping that, you know, there are so many people that love anything with cults, they might mistakenly buy the book and not be, <laughs> you know, horribly disappointed. But um, that was yeah, the other I, line of thought. I mean, it makes sense too. But I, I think to your point, like in terms of uh, everybody's famous as opposed to the cult in my garage, like you said, cults are popular. Maybe grab some people off that. But then also in the last 18 months, fame has become exponentially more soured upon by people you know, maybe in the wake of a lot of people showing their asses with a pandemic and maybe, you know, for example, in a, a video of them singing Imagine of things where maybe maybe it doesn't have the same appeal that it might have pre-pandemic. Uh, yeah, I wonder if the pendulum is going to swing the other way. I think maybe we've gone too far. And uh, I don't know. I, I Part of me wants to return to like this it feels like almost a simpler time for Hollywood and celebrities when, you know, they were just in their movies and you never saw them in anything else. And, and we, you know, we, we treated them with, with reverence. And uh, I, there's only so much you want to see of, of celebrities when they're on Twitter and on Instagram. And um, I don't know. I guess that's why, why they, uh, they, were, they call Tom Cruise the last movie star because there's really not that many other kind of larger than life um, you know, personas out there that, that, that feel like they have an air of mystery. I appreciate that. I guess, you know, as a film lover, there's less, there's less to undo in your head when you don't know as much about somebody. So that goes a long way, you know, like granted that, that anonymity or relative anonymity also does become mythologized sometimes. Like Daniel Day-Lewis is so mythologized with like, he was just a cobbler in Italy. And then uh, Martin Scorsese lied to him to get him to possibly do a movie, and then he did Gangs of New York. And um, I'm thankful for that as a huge Daniel Day-Lewis fan. But oh, he's, he's you know, the best. You know, but it's it's that funny thing of like uh, the less the the more you know, the more you have to undo. But then the less you know, the more you project, and then it becomes a whole other thing too. Yeah, nobody wants to see a Daniel Day-Lewis TikTok. So. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, we're thankful we don't have that. Or arguably a um, an Italian musical called The Nine. I think it was. I complete. I just remember that movie existed. Oh, what I don't. I can, I can picture the poster, but uh, yeah, I guess I missed that one. <laughs> I think uh, I seem to remember it very vaguely, and I think maybe we're all better for it as much as I deeply love him. I guess the um, transition to the uh, deeply unfair question: How are you? Oh yes, that is. That is deeply unfair. Uh, well, uh, you know, relatively compared to everyone else, I'm great. Um, but, uh, you know, when it's just me and my dog at home, um, I would be complaining a lot to him. But it's, it's, it's too embarrassing to complain when there's so many... So much uh, misery out there. Um, but I'm fine. I mean, in, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the bulk of the pandemic, uh, part of my time is working at home anyway. Uh, not all of it, but part of it. So it, it, it wasn't as huge, um, uh, you know, a, a shift for me. Um, but uh, yeah, there are definitely a lot of things I'm eager to do that uh, might not be able to do them too soon. Um, but uh, But yeah, I'm I'm all right. I didn't learn to bake bread or, you know, I have been ignoring my Duolingo uh, Spanish lessons. 
and uh, all the all the yeah my thoughts about like getting totally in shape. Yeah, I haven't I haven't really latched on to any of these like amazing pandemic hobbies that some people have, but um, but I'm good. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I, I when everybody was going through their bread phase, I was like, should I do that? And then I of course never did. I did the Duolingo thing for maybe a month. It didn't stick, admittedly, but. I tried uh, learning Italian. That didn't stick, unfortunately. I think I, I don't know. I, I I I was I feel like um in retrospect for the last eighteen months I've been so, in some form of like relative like just finding coping mechanisms and then shifting randomly throughout them sometimes just to you. the thing you need at the time plugging that hole hoping another two holes don't spring up in this place. So I didn't stick to a lot, but I'm also not like beating myself up about it because. It's all so much. Like, do do what you have to do, I guess. Yeah, don't beat yourself up. Definitely, um, I would say the yeah the the learning the language. It's it, it's always a little tougher and a little less motivating when you don't know if you're ever going to get to that place or you know be using it. So it's it's. Uh, uh, but yes, I'm still pay- I, I I'm paying for Duolingo, and I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna get. I am gonna get back into it. I am gonna get back into it. Um, yeah. 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 I think so. Yeah. Now that I say it, I feel I just got a rush of motivation to do it again. So maybe that, maybe all I need to do is talk about it to veritable strangers listening to it, and then that maybe that's the impetus I need. I don't know. But if I if I spoke Italian, I'd take you to task right now, and the rest of the <laughs> podcast would just be uh, you know one big language lesson. And it would be me just struggling to keep up because I rem- I have no retention <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, but that's probably like what I, that probably would have been me pandemic or no. I just don't think I, I don't know if I have a facility for other languages. I mean, arguably I don't have one for English. So at this point, so maybe not. I do want to ask you, by the way, about, I know this is like more of a footnote on a lot of other things that you've done, but I've never talked to anybody who worked for the weekly world news, which I'm f- utterly fascinated by. Yeah, it was a footnote only in uh, how long I was there, but it actually is uh, probably the thing uh, I don't know. I'm asked about almost all, all the time, so now I end up bringing it up a lot. I I, um, I lived in uh, Florida and went to high school in Florida, and the National Enquirer and the Weekly World News, the same company, um, were about two towns over in Lantana, and uh, I think it was a, a, a friend of a neighbor's. Um, knew I wanted to be a writer and knew someone that worked there. I, anyway, I ended up getting a, an internship, uh, like a summer intern at the National Enquirer. And uh, that was pretty interesting. And I'll, I'll, I'll just give you a taste of how long ago this was. The two big stories that it was like the summer of love. The two big stories were uh, Lonnie Anderson and Burt Reynolds' divorce and wow. uh, Julia Roberts and Lyle Lovett's marriage, which came out of nowhere. That, that really rocked the office. Um, and then I went back the next summer and they had a few different spots where they needed assistance, and I chose to work at the Weekly World News. Um, and I worked there. A, I worked there a couple summers, and then I worked there even a little bit uh, in college, um, uh, taking people's. I would take people's photographs, and then have them sign all this paperwork, send the photos to the Weekly World News, and they would use like my college roommate or my friend as someone who, you know, was attacked by a citrus monster or a <laughs> random guy who got like Princess Diana's liver after her uh, passing. Um, so, you know, uh, my, I went to a small school called St. Lawrence University. Half of St. Lawrence has, has been in uh, the Weekly World News uh, as some kind of like, uh, you know, anonymous weirdo. 
That's amazing. When you're, you know, pitching a story, I imagine that was like a good informal or formal training ground for, you know, being in a writer's room or, or I guess, you know, working for like the Boston Globe, just kind of knowing how to pitch a thing, but also maybe knowing what your editor or, or uh, showrunner in, in a certain case might be looking for. Is that right? It, it it really was. And I didn't realize that till later, you know, Weekly World News was a, I don't know, maybe it was like 15 people. And there wasn't a lot of pressure on me to, to pitch because I was there, you know, mostly, you know, filing things and stuff. But uh, if I pitched something and I, you know, it, it uh, Eddie Klontz, who was our, our kind of very colorful uh, Southern editor, if he liked it and it made him laugh, then, you know, extra kudos to me for pitching it. Um, but yeah, very much so. We would pitch things verbally and I think we'd also like throw index cards in a little bin on his desk. And, um, you know, uh, it, it's a, it's a, if you're a Weekly World News fan, it's a, it's a fine bullseye to hit. It's got to be somewhat outrageous, but you also want to feel when you're reading the paper that it's, you know, there are, the, there are the big ticket, like crazy items about aliens and things like that. But a lot of the smaller things you want to feel like, oh, maybe this could be real. And then we would also use real weird stories from, from uh, the Associated Press and put those in there. So for the people that say, well, the Weekly World News is all fake. Well, it's not all fake. There's, there's a couple real stories peppered in there. And, uh, and, and same thing when I worked at some, some small newspapers. Um, yeah, it was kind of the same same setup, pitching the editor, trying to really, you know, get them interested and, and sign off on it. And then uh, then you're kind of on the hook to fulfill the, the you know, the pitch you made, much like when you, you know, pitch something in a room and then that turns out to be the episode you're writing. Uh, pressure's on a little bit just to, you know, uh, make sure it's as good as the pitch you promised. <laughs> Which, yeah, I mean, with pitching, it's probably... I don't know. I imagine it's kind of its own art form to be really good at pitching, to be able to to ably tell a tale or, or distill a concept down in a very palatable way for people. I I think so. I think so. I, when, when I first moved here uh, uh, to, to L.A., which is where I am now, uh, when I first moved here, I was totally shocked how much pitching was a, a, a component of screenwriting, which is what I started doing. I mean, I'd seen the player. But I thought those were only, you know, the top, the cream of the crop, you, you know. I didn't yeah. realize even at the, bo the bottom rung as I'm being like sent out to meetings and I don't know what I'm doing, I'm supposed to be pitching. And then, you know, producers have these things, these open writing assignments where they have a book or a story or an idea. And I'm, you know, wasting years of my life working on those. And then they bring me somewhere and I'm pitching to their money men or their studios. It was it was all pitching. And, and so I was... I was like, oh, I didn't become a writer because I'm great at sitting in a room, you know, pitching myself. But I, I did come to enjoy it, and I still really enjoy it. I've just done it so much, and it sometimes is a nice respite, or it is a nice respite from, you know, looking at a computer and writing. If I'm if I'm excited about the pitch, um, then I'm I, I'm very excited to to pitch it. It's it's um, it's something I like to do. Over Zoom, it's not as fun, for sure. I don't know. Yeah, I would imagine that's really difficult because it's, again, imagining or presuming, but it's so much more difficult to read a room when you're doing that, right? Because you can't get that energy, see the nuances of people shifting or not shifting or, you know, reacting or sighing or whatever the case may be. But I imagine it's really difficult to gauge. Sometimes you need to gauge where to go with it. 
I, I, you are right on the money. Yeah, I, I find it very difficult. I know other writers that are, are like it better. You know, they can keep their notes out. You know, you're not, you don't mm-hmm. have to put on pants and drive 45 minutes. So that part, just to be, you know, uh, 90% of the time, uh, mildly embarrassed and disappointed and, and things don't work out. But, but I, I just find it much more stressful because, yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking at the person on the screen. I have all this material and do I do the short version? Do I do the long version? I, I, I literally, I can't, it's harder to make people laugh over Zoom. I can't tell, yeah, if they're shifting or bored or, or what. And uh, I, I find it, um, yeah, no fun. Yeah, I, to your point, like I've heard about people just having a monitor and just having their, you know, their PowerPoint presentation up to allow them to kind of feed off of that. So I guess maybe, maybe it allows for more, being more, presentational i guess you know if you're quote-unquote like fully prepared and confident in the pitch but again i could just be projecting and but i would definitely be a read the room are they liking this what do they think and then shifting accordingly yeah i never thought i would be so eager to oh just return to the days of sitting in traffic for an hour and uh you know, drinking my free water in a office just to go in and uh, have someone reject me to my face. But I am. I am. I'm nostalgic for those days. <laughs> you're, like, you're like, human contact is human contact right now. Exactly. Even if it's a rejection across a bottled water tour, I'll take it. And then, you you know, you don't find out they reject you later. So I, 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 I almost always leave being like, wow, that went great. They really love me. <laughs> Do you find that your pitches are more successful when it's something you are like fully, like you said, excited and believe in? Yes, yes. In, in fact, I don't even, uh, I'm not even going to put myself in that position because I can't fake it and they can sense it. Um, uh, you know, if you if you were lucky enough to sell whatever the, the thing is, uh, a show or movie, you know, you, you do have to write it and it's supposed to be great. So, so yeah, I'll, I'll just keep working on it till I love it. And then I feel like, well, you know, as long as I love it and can believe in it, then I, um, you know, the passion's going to be there and I'm going to have the story to tell. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't even remember the last time I pitched something that was kind of like a, uh, a dog. Um, I'm sure there was one not too long ago, but, but those aren't, those aren't good. I have pitched a couple things with like, with like other people and and that can be good and and bad, but it it does make me, it it gives me a little more anxiety because I rather just do it all my, myself, um, uh, you know, because I have it, I have it down. I mean, I, I don't know how much your listeners want to get into pitching, but I usually have it down. <laughs> so it, it seems like it's a conversation, but I have it all in my head. So you, I, I pitch some stuff with some some actors and comedians and stuff, and you know, they want to be a little more uh, riffy. But I'm not an actor, so I want to have it all in my head, and and that that can uh, give me a little anxiety. But otherwise, yeah, when I go in, I usually feel like it's the greatest thing in the world. And, um, and, and that's why the disappointment always, it's always fresh when they pass. Yeah, I imagine, yeah, I imagine it's tough to have to, or on some level, like build emotional calluses to, because you have, you're, you get so close to something, you get so passionate about it, you're so into it and you pitch it and there's a vulnerability to that, you know, but then again, it's also a business and some people just don't give a shit about that because it's just like whether they want your show or movie or not. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I want to ask you about Marin, the uh, great show that you, you know, like I said in the intro, helped create, me wrote on it and executive produced it. But I was curious, you know, with, with somebody like Mark, who is such a specific voice 
you know, he's such a specific yeah. person. So, so I, I'm very impressed by him. He's so smart and has such, uh, such great taste in things and is so well defined. It's such a, an, he's very impressive to me, but when you're writing for that, or, or maybe at the beginning stages writing for that, is it difficult to write for somebody who is a real person with such a specific voice, or is it just like writing for any other character? Um, well, well, for him, and I, I agree with all those things. I'm such a fan, so that's why it, it really was a dream job. And just because we were talking about, you know, like producers and open writing assignments and things like that, it it was so rare to be in a producer's office where I had pitched them something and they had something similar passed for some reason. And then it came to the part of the meeting where they, they had something. And usually for me, it's, they don't have anything good. It's like a book nobody wants to adapt, some article no one cares about. And in this case, they were like, oh, we want to do a, a show with, uh, you know, we're going to do a show with Mark Marin, haven't found the right writer yet. And uh, I, that was so exciting. I, I didn't even get too excited because I figured, you know, he has a lot of fans and also especially a lot of fans in L.A. that are writers. Um, so it, it was a really... Um, uh, a really a dream gig. And, and then they sent me over and I met him and we got along. Um, but, uh, I, and I have worked on a few things after that because I worked with Mark. I've been put together with some other comedians that think maybe things haven't worked out as well, but I have really enjoyed, I really enjoy hearing about somebody's life and trying to craft it into a narrative. I mean, Mark's life was already a narrative that he's already crafted on stage for years. So there's really it was really my opportunity to just screw up. I mean, there's such a great hook in the show of, um, you know, besides everything else, of uh, just a, a great simple hook of of someone who lives, uh, you know, at the time on the outskirts of Hollywood and then has these guests come into his house to record a talk show. And it's like these, it's like a plot, you know, a great plot generator where, you know, Ben Stiller can come over and, you know, they can get upset about something or maybe Sarah Silverman comes over, but she's just there to kind of like add a little context and be a Greek chorus for whatever the, the you know, the other plot is that's going on. Um, just listening to the podcast, you know, and being a fan of that, you're so um, wrapped up in Mark's life with his girlfriend, you know, his parents, his cats and his kind of axes to grind against certain people that it, it, it just, um, you know, everything was already all there in the show. Um, so yeah, in, in terms of, of and, and the other great thing I would say about writing for him was, uh, you know, he, even though he's about 10 years older, I, I just feel like we had similar taste. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, you can work with somebody and even if they're the nicest person in the world, if they don't have the same taste as you, it's, it's hard. You're not like, you know, hitting for the same target, but Mark has great taste. So I'm like, well, I know if if Mark likes the script, then I feel like I have done my job. I mean, he's also the boss, so that makes it easy. But I, I don't know. Just I feel like the the, the references. There, there was like one time where I, I there there were some jokes about a Sam Peckinpah movie, and uh, I, I didn't remember. I was like, does Mark like Sam Peckinpah? And then Mark loves Sam Peckinpah. And then I was like, oh, maybe he told me that, or did I just make that up? It, it just there was a, a lot of uh, blending. I felt a little bit of a mind meld. A um, little bit of like writing fan fiction since I was already a fan of the podcast, if that makes okay. sense. No, that makes total sense. And, you know, to your point, like, I mean, just as a as a kind of an immediate shorthand, having that similar taste goes such a long way to, you know, expedite the the acclimation process. To know, and, and I guess knowing 
you you know it's a parasocial relationship but learning so much about him through the podcast you really without knowing any him or he knowing you exist or vice versa you know him you know how he works he can only be himself and that's i mean that's one of the many reasons why he's so successful yeah yeah agreed um, yeah, there's, uh, you know, you don't go on that show and you, you know immediately that uh, the tone is not going to be, you know, Mark's not going to want anything too sitcom-y and is going to want something with, uh, I always thought, like, an, you know, a little bit of a, a, a li- that does go to some dark places. Because um, yeah. especially, um, well, even now, especially then, you know, we had some dark stuff going on. So, yeah, that was uh, that was a really, a, a really fun one and got to work with so many so many great people uh, besides him as well. Yeah, I mean, there was so many great actors and people playing themselves in it. And also to your point, I thought uh, as a, you know, I guess a narrative device or a tool or just an active through line, that best utilization of podcasting in the form of a TV show or movie yet. I mean, I guess podcasting kind of seems like it's more of a tertiary thing in most things that they do pop up. It's kind of like a, quirky character trait or something but in that show it worked it really seemed like it yeah it lends itself naturally to it it was perfect yeah especially even if uh, i'm you know at the, at the time I mean, most people knew what podcasts were but not everybody uh, i don't think my parents knew what one was but you see him with the microphones and he's in his garage and he's there with like uh you know a movie star and you just get the dynamic and uh and, and know what you know know what he's up to um yeah, no, it was it was super cool. I mean, at, at the time, I think that, you know, the other thing was, uh, you know, Louis was on and the, the challenge was how is I never thought this, but I think that the challenge from some buyers might have been like, well, how is this different than Louis? Um, besides <laughs> the fact that, you know, Mark is completely different. You know, there, there's that, you know, that dynamic of the, the, the podcast and its house and a, just a completely different lifestyle and relationship to, to fame. It's always wild how that works. I, you know, everybody has their, um, I guess, the recency bias of this point of reference oh it's like one percent of this so this is our point of comparison but it's more like you know wow stand-up comedian being some form of himself that's just like this which is otherwise completely different yeah yeah i I think it's and i hadn't thought about that for a while it's a little fresh in my mind because like i was saying before um uh rest in peace Ed, ed asner passed away yesterday and uh, our wonderful editor from the show posted uh, some footage from the the pilot presentation that isn't even on, you know, uh, isn't even on air. You know, it was it, we did it as like a sales tool, and Ed was in that, and I was just thinking about, uh, yeah, thinking about it a little more um, yesterday. I saw I've seen so many stories of people with their own personal interactions with him, and a lot of the stories were I was frightened of him just so intimidated of the idea of Ed Asner and then you meet him and he's the sweetest guy in the world. Yeah, he was, uh, he was super sweet in my little brief little window. Just, uh, he kind of reminded me a lot of my grandpa. He told some dirty jokes. He cracked everybody up. You know, he, he looked at the script for like 30 seconds and he was like ready to roll. I mean, he was, he was just like a, like a, you know, real force of nature, real hurricane, just like blowing into this little set. And, um, and being awesome for a couple scenes, and then he was gone. Uh, that's so nice. It's like, wow, he, he was gone just as quickly as he arrived, but that was Ed Asner. Like, just an absolute legend. Yeah, and it, it gave the pilot presentation, I don't know, it was just like kind of cool as a little momentum of, oh, here's our guest star, and 
and yeah, he was he like loomed very large in my in my childhood, uh, as I'm sure for a lot of people, as like Lou Grant. I mean, it, it just uh, like you know one of the top ten most iconic TV characters of all time, probably. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then getting what Judd Hirsch played him in the in the actual TV series is that right? I've, it's been a minute since. Okay. Yeah, Judd which, Hirsch, which was amazing because like when I was a kid, Taxi was my favorite show. I think the first. Uh, play I ever saw was was him and Cleavon Little and I'm not Rappaport like oh wow I just I, I was like oh wow Judd Hirsch and you know he's I mean he's done so much like when you sit next to him at lunch he doesn't want to talk about taxi like he's talking about <laughs> his theater he had the detective show Del Vecchio but he's done so much theater and, and so so many movies and yeah really really interesting guy yeah I watched a movie with him the other day I think it was called Teachers with uh, Nick Nolte, and I like the movie. It was just, um, when your point of reference for an actor is so, like, TV as opposed to movies, to see him pop in a movie, I was like, oh, there he is. I just wasn't anticipating that it was, like, drinking water thinking it was Sprite. I just wasn't, I liked that. I just didn't expect it. My brain wasn't ready. Oh, yeah. No, he's, he's great. Ordinary people. Yeah, yeah, he's awesome. What a great actor. He has such a nice energy about him. He's always, has so much warmth in all of his tv characters and, and his movie characters yeah what a great actor i was curious too that uh you did work i don't normally ask these types of questions but i'm a big i'm a big david fincher fan i've never talked to anybody who has worked in his orbit at all and you worked on i've never pronounced this before video some crazy is that the pronunciation of that i i, I think so there were, i i I, I don't know how much I'm supposed to say, if anything, oh, that, that showed in air. But I, I will I'll just say, with, you know, I, I, I was on that. It was um, it, it, then it was called Living on Video. And um, and I was just a writer, uh, you know, hired in a in a room of like really talented writers. And I'm not quite sure why the show didn't didn't happen and and my few times meeting david fincher i was very star trek so i'm a i'm a big fan he was kind of everything i wanted him to be and the show was would have been so awesome i don't know yeah. i hope they end up you know making it at some point um i i think he was i think this was in the trades he was so busy doing some other shows hbo wanted for and maybe somehow this one got put on the back burner but yeah. um yeah no he's um he's the best i i just rewatched uh, seven uh, recently, I, yeah, I remember seeing that in the theater and being utterly blown away. And uh, I don't know, I love all his movies. I think Zodiac is a masterpiece. Me too. That's my favorite. Yeah, and me too. It's unbelievable. I've watched it so many times. Unbelievable. No, I was just curious about. Um, I mean, honestly, what you said. If he, if the David Fincher <laughs> that again kind of mythologized to some extent is just that experience because he seems, you know, what I've read about him is like that he can is meticulous he's brilliant and he has so much knowledge of just working knowledge of a film set that like he could play any role if he needed to yeah that's the sense i got but but like i said i also i didn't really get to see him working because i yeah. wasn't uh on set and the writer's room was a a separate entity that he you know poked his head into you know telling us giving us some directions and but, but just like the way he handled himself uh, for me, I was like, oh, that's kind of what I hope David Fincher was, would be like. And, and it was. Uh, he just, you felt like he could, at least I felt like he could kind of get anything done or off the ground. Um, but, but yeah, I, 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 I was supposed to go to set for the one episode I wrote, but by that point, the, the show was um, 
uh, no longer in in production. So that was a that was a bummer. That sucks. Okay, well, fair enough. I don't want to dredge up bad memories, but <laughs> only good memories. Only good memories. Okay, good. You've written uh, or wrote and directed a number of short films, and I watched a few of them. Really, really liked them. Oh, thank the, you, uh, thank you. That's that's an even more elite club than than reading the books. So <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, they're on your website. Um, Take Out Night and The Bad Half I watched. Both were great. And I know, I think you said on a podcast of wanting to direct features. Is first is that correct? Yes. I, okay. And I'm actually in, in it right now. Um, I, I won't say too much because I, you know, it, I'm, I'm, I never know if, if this is really the time where, where it's really going to happen. But we are... Sure. Um, uh, I'm working with a wonderful producer, and we are steeped in the world of, of uh, an indie horror movie right now. Been working on it for months, and uh, hopefully, going to be shooting soon. Knock on wood. Um, yeah, it's definitely the the um, most challenging thing I've worked on, and we haven't even got to set yet. But it's been exciting, and hopefully, uh, yeah, hopefully, we'll film soon. Um, I, I think when I, I, you know, I love working in, in TV, but I, I just uh, started writing screenplays when I started out and kind of had that that itch. And I don't really feel like there's much of a market for me anymore to sell screenplays. I just don't, I, I think it's it's gotten a lot harder, uh, especially for people that write comedies and dramedies um, and maybe aren't so much in the franchise world. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway, so I, I've been making shorts for, for years and just have had a real itch to make a movie and wrote this um, uh, very character, I think, character-driven horror movie. And um, we seem to have found, uh, found some financing for it. And, uh, yeah, fingers crossed it all works out. That's really exciting. That's really exciting. The, uh, w- when you were making a short film, I know outside of, like, obviously the short film itself and everything that goes into that, which is incredibly complicated in and of itself but are there other considerations into that which is to say like you know to some extent this is your proof of concept this is your maybe your calling card and are you factoring all of those things in to kind of show this is what i can do and this is the type of thing i want to do um i should have been uh, I don't know if i was i i think probably the the very first one i shot was just something I shot in my bedroom with um, some wonderful actors that were also friends, and uh, really, uh, really, uh, that project was very blessed because we went to Sundance and it was great. I was like, "Wow, I have the I have the magic touch." Uh, the other shorts didn't quite go to Sundance as as uh, and and uh, take off that that easily, but um, but you know, for the first short, it was just I wanted to direct something. Uh, I think for the the second short. Um, uh, yeah, probably, I guess the, the I, I just thought I had a, I had a fun idea, and we were, I was in an apartment that seemed to work for it. Um, yeah, for the the third short, I wanted to try something a little different. Uh, Takeout night, I wanted to had this idea for a narrative with like a magical realism ending, um, and I, I felt like we kind of had a wonderful DP, Jeff Maxim, and, and 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 felt like we wanted to you know work a little harder on on the look and the mood of that. And for the fourth one, Exterminator, I was, uh, which was just two years ago, I was writing, starting to write a little more in the horror vein. And, you know, it's not quite a horror movie, but it is uh, uh, hopefully a little creepy. And I do have a horror version uh, of Exterminator as a feature 
um, that I am uh, going to shop around. Um, so, oh, cool. so, so that I guess for that last one, I did try and think of it from a, a little more of a practical stand standpoint. Is that um, you know, it's not available online, but is Exterminator in any way related to the short story in the book? Uh, yes, and 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 Exterminator, unless uh, unless that uh, I shut off that link, it should be on Vimeo. And okay. uh, yes, it is the 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 story kind of came first, and then I made the short, and then I went back and kind of. Uh, you know, did a draft of the story, but yes, a similar story. So, uh, and then in the feature version, the uh, uh, titular exterminator uh, ends up um, being a sociopath who uh, she exterminates not just your pests, but also your human pests, people that you might not like in your life. Okay, well, I'm I'm in. Okay. That sounds great. <laughs> That's one. Okay, good. Yes. Good, good start. I was just curious because when I was reading the book too, that was, I don't know, it's how my brain works. I read a story and then I'm like randomly just think, could this be a movie? And that one especially, I was like, oh, this could, that could really be something, you know, cinematic and more visual for sure. Oh, good, good. Um, yeah, that was the only one that I'd, that has been a blueprint for something I've actually filmed. But there, there are a couple of them like the, um, the foodie detective is one that I have a, a TV pitch for, and I, I would mm -hmm. really love to, you know, do a show, really do a show about a, a, a guy who's almost like this um, noir detective version of Jonathan Gold or Anthony Bourdain solving these kind of low-level crimes in the food world. Yeah, that takes a lot of boxes for me. I would absolutely love that. The uh, Especially with, I mean, fundamentally enough, speaking detective stories, that's weirdly how we got in contact with each other uh, over twitter was this is one of the more random connections via twitter i've had okay was where you know alan mcleod former guest posted about wanting to know randomly of like wanting to know if roman polanski his th roman polanski's thoughts on the sequel to chinatown the two jakes and as soon as i read that by the way i was like i just read this book i know exactly where it is <laughs> and i tracked it down and then I returned to his question, and then you had commented saying, like, something to the effect of, like, I know you're just joking around, but I know the answer. And so then I read that, and I went, oh, well, oh, he's joking. Okay, well, never mind. And then I randomly returned to it and then saw you went more specific, and then I was like, oh, here we go, and I posted it. And then we kind of talked back and forth from there. We, we did. Um, we, we went on a real uh, real noir streak. Um, yeah, I, uh, well, well, to bring it back full circle, Alan is the star of Exterminator, the short. Oh. So I will, I will make sure you have that, that link. I, it, I, I, maybe I turned it off on my Vimeo page, but it should be on there. Uh, he's such a, a great actor. Um, but I, I, that, that book, um, that Sam Lawson book, The Big Goodbye really blew me away. I mean, it's like reading a novel. Um, uh, it's fantastic. It's just so great. He's such a great writer. And I've been in a, uh, Zoom noir club over the pandemic where we uh the people that run the club pick two two noirs a kind of classic and a neo-noir and we watch them over, not together but we watch them and then we get together on on sundays over zoom and talk about them so I've, I've been in a noir headspace i love that yeah i've um i mean i mentioned it on here plenty of times so i won't i guess go into it too much but yeah the last 18 months especially have been a major, like me, major, major 70s film deep dive. I've watched so many, like probably a hundred oh, wow. uh, films in the 70s, and it's been amazing. And yeah, you know, certain, uh, 
just to go see the relative totality of everything that was offered in the 70s. And it's just an unbelievably fertile ground of different things, noir stories. I mean, I I was about to name some, but it's just everything. It's unbelievable. You know, I know it's a a cliche at this point to say, like, the 70s were the best, was the best decade in film, but it really was. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I I, I mean, that's the whole reason I wanted to get into movies. Um, I mean, even though I was, you know, I was born in the 70s, I wasn't watching movies then, I was watching movies in the 80s and 90s, but there was a... you know, th- there was a, um, a film channel in Boston where I'm from, and and uh, they would show all types of those, you know, classic 70s movies uncut on the movie loft. Everything from, you know, Dog Day Afternoon to Straw Dogs to Serpico and The Last Detail. And just the, the vibe of those movies um, is so great. They, you know, they, they, they're so novelistic. And that time in Hollywood when you had these unconventional-looking stars mm. and the ambiguity of the stories um, and the oftentimes kind of cynical outlook uh, on society they're 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 just the best so yeah that's that's the well I always go back to um, whenever I hear about something uh, a couple of years ago I went to the, the new Beverly theater which is the theater Tarantino owns out here and it was an Al Pacino double feature and it was two movies I'd never seen before, Panic in Needle Park and Scarecrow with him and Gene Hackman. Both were yes. excellent. Scarecrow really blew my mind. I was like, oh, my God, this is like the, you know, like the, the just as, as the counterpart to like Midnight Cowboy or something. Have I not seen that movie? So it was so great to see two 70s gems I hadn't seen before. But even better was between the two movies, Tarantino got up and he was like, hey, we have a special guest in the audience. And it was Al Pacino. He was sitting right in front of me. I didn't oh, even shit. know. And um, yeah. Anyway, I really nerded out. <laughs> I would have, lo- yeah, I would have lost my mind. I think Panic in Eagle Park is one that I've had on my list. I need, I need to watch it then. But Scarecrow, I watched, I don't know, handful of months ago, and I was like, how have I not seen this movie? Just unbelievable. And it was, uh, I mean, there was even a moment where Pacino was doing a pratfall, yeah, and like doing physical comedy, which I was not anticipating at all. Yeah, and that he's this meek character, uh, and and Hackman's never been more like burly and intimidating, and just the, yeah. the cinematography and, and and those locations. Um, yeah, I, I have really been uh, pu- pushing Scarecrow on on some people that haven't seen it recently. Yeah, that that one I recommend to people. I, you know, out of any actor, I actually know the number of movies I've seen of his, but Gene Hackman this year I've watched fifteen of his movies because <laughs> wow. uh, I was just like. I mean, it's Gene Hackman. Just watch his movies. And the movie that I watched the most out of them, because I guess that the movie itself is like lean and mean, is Prime Cut. Oh, Wait. yeah. Yeah. I, I bought Prime Great. Cut uh, like two years ago because I couldn't find it anywhere. I actually heard uh, a, a, a Mark Marin podcast, him and Tracy Letts talking about it. And I was like, what is this movie? Yeah. yeah so bizarre. That uh, whorehouse uh, heroin den cattle ranch that gene hackman <laughs> runs is yes. so crazy and just the the how gross it is as he's eating the bowls of meat just that whole opening sequence is so uh, <laughs> bizarre yeah yeah it's yeah great. i particularly love a movie that knows how to introduce characters you know especially with hackman like you said just eating the most visually unappealing looking meat possible doing it with such vigor 
like clearly intimidating because again it's rehabbing but but then on top of that too like it's sissy spacex first movie it's a movie also the backstory of which is that gene hackman at least partially took the role because he couldn't get he didn't get a job offer for 18 months or something after making the french connection wow and, really yeah and i think it was like in the time in between i don't think it was 18 months maybe it was like six months but i think it was the time between making the french connection and then it coming out and him being becoming maybe a more realized gene hackman or yeah. you know but yeah. yeah amazing and now he's just riding his bike around um seeing uh, santa fe santa I fe okay it sounds great <laughs> man i you know out of all the 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 retired actors like i mean of course like these are not original choices but i just desperately want him to do another movie i want jack nicholson to do another movie i mean again like people in the 70s pretty much but i don't know just something about gene hackman not that it matters but that out of he did so many amazing movies always amazing in in his movies and then he just goes out on welcome to mooseport i want better for that Right, right. I think I read a quote where he said he wasn't going to, uh, you know, spend the rest of his life playing like, you know, old grandpas. And I get it, you know. Fair enough. Yeah. You know, that's what I think about when I think about, um, you know, some people knock on Robert De Niro for just like being in anything. But I get it when you're, if you're an actor and that's maybe all you've ever known as a profession and that's just what you do, that's what you want to do. Yeah, I imagine it just gets so tough for anyone the older you get because you just get pigeonholed into these roles. I get that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to rush out and see Bad Grandpa, but uh, <laughs> but I, I get it. I mean, I'm glad he's, uh, at least he's working with Scorsese again, so he's getting a little, a little, sneaking a little quality in there. Man, I'm beyond excited for that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so exciting. Um, okay. Well, we've gone past what I promised. So before we wrap it up, what all do you want to point people toward? Oh, um... Well, I'd really like people to, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say, to read the book might be too much to ask. I'd just like them to start off with just buying the book. Um, if you read the book, that's like extra credit. And um, yeah, it's, um, you know, you can find me on Twitter, Duncan Berm. And the, the, the book is, uh, it might not be at your local bookstore unless you live in L.A. I know Skylight Books and Stories has it, but uh, it's available on Amazon, but don't shop at Amazon. You can buy it through the publisher, Maudlin House. Uh, you can buy it, you know, wherever. Uh, just Google it, The Cult in My Garage. And if you read it and you like it, maybe, uh, you know, leave a good re- Goodreads or Amazon review. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's about it. Perfect. Yeah, and to your point, I bought it through Maudlin House, but if you can buy it locally, support your local bookstores, please. And uh, if not, go Maudlin as opposed to Amazon. Because uh, they'll be fine without your money. Yeah. Amazon will be okay. But yeah, thank you for doing this. This is a blast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for reaching out and, and thanks for your kind words about the book. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it really is great. Highly recommend it. Uh, and thank you all for listening. Please take care. Please stay safe. Please get vaccinated. If you're not vaccinated, wear a mask. I'm pretty sure that's correct. I'm going to. So, you know, do that. And yeah, be kind to yourself and thank you again and bye.